This project was produced by Planet FM with support from New Zealand On Air. The series features 15 candid conversations with people from migrant and former refugee backgrounds, sharing their stories, their lived experience, their own perspectives and covering some sensitive topics. I'm Alina from Storio, and you're listening to Pass the Mic. Due to the global pandemic, we've recorded these conversations from the comfort of our homes. This is episode 15. In this episode, I'm talking to Kat Erdamian, who is Iranian, Kurdish, New Zealander, and a former child refugee. Hi, Kat. Hello. <laughs> Hello. I wanted to comment firstly on your beautifully arranged bookshelf behind you that's arranged by color. Thank you for noticing it. This was a hot debate on Instagram. I wanted to organize my bookshelf because I've just moved home. A lot of people suggested color to organize by color, which I've never done before. So I thought, okay, I'll do that. And then it it was really contested. People were coming out from the woodworks, people I haven't heard from in years saying, how could you do that? It must be done by topic. Topic was the biggest counter <laughs> it looks beautiful looks like a rainbow a rainbow kat i would love to start by asking you a very broad question you can take it wherever whichever way you want is to tell me your story i can never start my story without talking about my birthplace and then my forced displacement from that birthplace so i was born in iran and after the 1979 revolution, Islamic revolution, and I've never been back to my home while my birth country. Uh, so it's interesting when people say like, what's your home country? I can talk about my birth country, but I don't know if Iran would be my home country. I come from a mixed Turkish, Kurdish, Iranian heritage. So my mother's side are Kurd, my father's side are Turkish Iranian. And that in itself is part of my origin story in the sense that it was quite uncommon in terms of just like ethnic marriages, let alone that my parents coming from the Baha'i community, coming from the Baha'i faith, were also disrupting some social norms around love and marriage and what process takes place when you meet somebody and want to get married to that person. So, you know, if they were at a time when you met someone, the parents said yes, and you were to get married, there was no getting to know each other, no having conversations of, of depth. They disrupted that in the sense that they were very eager to ensure that they got to know each other. So there's that kind of origin of coming from parents who from the very beginning of their union were very progressive, quote unquote, progressive. And then they made the ultimate progressive choice, I guess, of one can say they chose to leave, but really they were impelled to flee the country that was denying them education. By extension, they knew their children would be denied access to education, where there was a climate of fear, where at any point you didn't know if your if it was going to be your family that was going to be rounded up, whether it was going to be uh, your children who were going to be bullied at school. You know, my father's first memory of primary school, his 
first memory is walking into his classroom and his teacher introducing him to the class as the dirty Baha'i that no one should be friends with or talk to. Again, that's all part of my origin story. So I can't, I can't um, separate all of that. We fled into the borders of Pakistan and my father went first. He walked the border. There's a really interesting side story about him being captured. And uh, I think that's maybe for another conversation. But what happened in that situation that he was able to be freed and go and enter Pakistan. And then after a few months, sending word to us that it was safe and we were smuggled across the border. My mother, my older brother and I with a group of others, we primarily went by a camelback. And there are countless stories within that journey that make me who I am as well that have been passed down to me because even though I experienced it, you know, at such a young age, I don't have conscious memory of it. It's not an active memory I have, but it nevertheless has obviously formed who I am. And so then we, yeah, we went to Pakistan, um, took a while for us to receive refugee status. There was a very clear processing system. It did take time, took almost two years. So that's, you know, still a significant period, but we're not talking decades of, you know, um, being in limbo or, or stateless, so to speak. So in that sense, we were privileged, and then we were given the option of being resettled to either New Zealand or Canada. And again, you know, my parents' first question and remains to this day quite a prominent, like, measure of how they make decisions was, where is the best place for education? So, you know, education is a tool for transformation. And, you know, their answer was, well, you know, for a young family like yours, New Zealand is probably the best place. It's a small country. Um, when we landed in Auckland Airport, we were greeted by a Baha'i family there. For the quote-unquote authorities to identify you as a refugee, you had to carry a UNHCR bag, <laughs> a bag which had the UN logo on it. And so my mother, I have a photo of it, of us entering the airport, and my mom's just holding this bag. And then we were given the decision of where to live in New Zealand. So again, that's very significantly different to now. And again, my parents asked that question, where is the best place for education? I said again, for a young family like yours, Dunedin. And not knowing anything about Dunedin, they said, great, sounds good. You know, they said, it's got the oldest university there. It's a student city. Great place for a young family, go there. I mean, you can't get more, dis I mean, yeah, you really can't get more distinct than going from this sort of Kurdish province in Iran not very green. You go into the South Island and it's rainy and cold and old and old buildings. And so, yeah, so that's that's how we landed here and how in some ways I now call Aotearoa home. So I guess my home country is Aotearoa. My birth country is Iran. As you said, because we some of the things that we experience as children, we might not have a direct memory, but they inside ourselves, they shape everything about us. Growing up in New Zealand then, did your parents share much stories about the journey? Like, did you, were you, as a, as a child, were you aware of the origin story and stuff? Yes, yes. I don't remember from when they started sharing the stories, but, and then there was a period of my life where they stopped sharing the stories. And I don't know if it was an exhaustion 
that comes with that, you know, constantly retelling and reliving that trauma. But it was very much embedded in my understanding of who I am and who they were and what they did. Um, A lot of it was laced with jokes. So my dad's a really good storyteller and a really good jokester. So this hilarious story is about how they entered, you know, this city, this cold city, and my dad just rocks up to the university and demands a meeting with the chancellor and and says that he wants to, he wants, and he didn't know English, and he was like, I want to become a doctor. Like, you know, he's like, and he came from, you know, Iran where like he didn't have even university qualifications because he wasn't allowed to go to university as a Baha'i. But the way he tells that story of how like then the the chancellor's saying to him, but you don't, you don't even know English. And he's like, don't worry, don't worry. I just, I only don't know a few words, you know? So there was parts of the stories that I was told that were beautiful and light and just sweet at times. And then of course there was a lot of sadness, difficulty, a lot of otherness, (laughs) you know, their intention was never actually to resettle in this country for as long as they have. And I think this is a, if if we can just maybe like sidetrack a little, I think this is a real common misconception about migration broadly as like a, as a phenomena, but particularly about forced migration, like forced displacement. I think there's this assumption particularly in the west that everyone wants to come and live in the west you know like oh like if only we could all live in australia new zealand the states canada like germany wherever and for the majority of people i've met in my work i found over and over again that most people want to be where they have a sense of belonging right like have a sense of homeness origin right and it doesn't matter how many years go by. It doesn't matter even if that home country doesn't accept you, doesn't want you, doesn't love you, right? You still, there's still this desire to actually be there. So when my parents left, their thoughts were maybe a couple of years. You know, there was always this idea or this hope that the revolution was going to not last and they would go back and they would build a life there and they would contribute to their society it was the place they knew the language they knew the land they knew you know the cultural dynamics they loved their country it's quite similar to i'm thinking and i don't know maybe it's an assumption but i'm thinking with older migrants who didn't come as children i'm thinking my mom for example people that i know who have lived most or a big chunk of their lives in their home country and for whatever reason decided to either migrate or were displaced or like my mom for example now i know how much i think kazakhstan is still even though there are all these problems and currently it's actually quite unstable place because of what's happening in ukraine and russia and actually kazakhstan itself there is still that sense of belonging and love and yearning i guess for that that feeling of um culture and feeling like you don't have to explain your existence yet again uh, because of some problems and i guess it's a bit different for like for my mom there was no you know she did have an option to stay or leave but because of the systemic changes of systemic sorry oppressions i guess of like first of all she's russian inter-racism back in kazakhstan patriarchy she's a single mom who's a working mom which is like not a acceptable thing to be so for those reasons she 
is really happy to be here, but all their belonging and all the heart and soul, I think, still yearns for that that acceptance, that like cultural, yeah. Many of us, we we aspire to be where we are, to make the most of where we are, to grow and contribute to a you know prosperous life, and it's the condition, like when you said the systemic oppression, it's the conditions around us that might impel us to, to, to leave, whether we're forced to leave or empowered to make the choice to leave, whatever language we want to choose, you know? So when people say, oh, but they're economic migrants, you know, they're not refugees, they're economic migrants because they're looking for economic opportunities. Well, okay, well, why is that not okay? But an expat is okay. So it's how we view, you know, then this whole whole thing about racism and how we view people um, and their contributions. Growing up here, the early memories of like, teenagehood when we kind of form our identity a little bit more as people do you remember what you were like I didn't want to be Persian that is something I strongly remember I wanted to be white I wanted to have blonde hair I wanted to not have hair on my arms like I wanted to be anything but what I was physically I didn't mind so much the the food aspect or the cultural stuff, you know, like, you know, having meetings or gatherings and song and, but it was mostly a physical thing. I didn't feel like I belonged in that sense or was, let's be frank, I didn't think I was beautiful, right? I think most teenagers probably felt the same, but my, my measure or my comparison was always to to the white blonde girls in my class and as a result of that you know I didn't want to speak Persian I didn't want to speak Farsi yeah and I I don't regret it I understand it now but it's a pity I definitely have come full circle in the sense like I've come back not full circle I've come back to my cultural identity or whatever aspect of that I think we're very lucky in some ways to be living at a time where there are people having these conversations. We were not having these conversations 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And Kat, how did you, because you have, I don't know how many, five, six degrees as well. <laughs> what, when did you decide that, obviously you said education was a big priority with your family. What was that journey into those degrees or doing those degrees and also choosing to dedicate your like working life and, and life in general to those issues to those uh you know when it comes to migration when it comes to everything new human rights and stuff like what was that journey into that to whom much is given much is asked i think i am very conscious on a daily basis of my privileges i have many and they come from the back of sacrifices. They come from the literal sweat, blood, and tears of my ancestors and from the vision, endurance, and capacity of my parents. And I'm not interested in, like, just enjoying them. My comfort is not my goal. <laughs> Pleasure is not my goal. So I think that it's obviously been part of my upbringing and we can't exclude that. Like, you know, I've been raised with a very socially, in a very socially conscious family environment, religious environment, 
just community generally, and that's naturally impacted the kinds of places I've been in my life, the kinds of conversations I've participated in and the content that I've been exposed to, whether it's written content, visual or whatever. So I've been conditioned to believe this. I, I, I acknowledge that. But there's also just something that I think is part of my character, my personality, how I'm wired. I do think we've all been gifted a personality and the personality doesn't change. I think our character can change and be nurtured and we can educate ourselves and all that. But there's something about our personalities. It's like when you're born, you know, they say, oh, like that child's a little bit feisty or that child's a little bit whatever. And it's kind of like sweet actually to like see what's unique about your personality. And I do think I have this like sensitive, um, serious inclination to life you know it was always like it was the civil rights movement or it was the holocaust or like something like there was always something that I was really concerned about so I think it was just my part of my makeup which is the ultimate like are we nurtured to be this way or do we have a nature to be this way and I think it's both in my in my particular life story yeah yeah I I wonder um quite often about that and when you work in the space of like, how do you know, changing hearts and minds of people or trying to build, you know, societal collective empathy or whatever we want to call fancy words. It's something that I feel like for myself doing this work or being, whether it's through my like paid 95, whether it's through the project I used to do, my volunteering, it feels so core to me. Like it's almost, I didn't choose to do that. It's just, it's just, yeah, choice was never a thing. It's just something that I, grew up into and probably partly you know observing my mom being like that and being very giving and dedicating her life to like very hard life to still giving if if that's if I didn't choose that and I'm going into spaces of people who are currently choosing not to support or help or whatever and being more in their comfort and maybe enjoying the privilege more than using the privilege how do we change that? In, or how do we influence that in others if, if it's something that is given? I used to be more judgmental than I am now. I think I've come to truly believe everyone's doing the best that they can. Even if I don't agree with someone's behavior or whatever, that's also an indication that they're doing the best that they can with what they know and what they've been given. So I meet I try I try to meet everyone with compassion love um, and a belief that they really are on this path and where they are right now whatever they are doing it's the best that they can be doing right now so how to make that better well first I think we all just when we know better we try to do better Right. So maybe we, they just don't know better. Like my daughter comes to school, some, comes home from school and says, you know, so and so was mean to me today, or I saw them push someone on the playground, whatever. Why would they do that? Like, why would they be? You know, these are core questions to the human experience. Why is there evil in the world? Why do good, bad things happen to good people? Like all these sorts of things. And we can go meta and philosophical, which I love to do. But with her, I make it very simple. I try, I hope it's simple enough for her to, to kind of grasp. She seems to. But, you know, I just say, like, maybe they just don't know. 
Maybe they weren't told about kindness. Maybe they haven't seen kindness. Maybe they haven't felt kindness, you know? And I say, like, no one's actually a bad person. That person's not a bad child. They maybe made a bad choice. Maybe they're having a hard time, you know? They can do, they, they'll, they can do better when they know better. So maybe you can tell them. Maybe you can show them. Maybe you can help them. And then sometimes it's a situation where, look, they don't know better. You just pull yourself out of that situation, right? It's not your problem to solve, right? So when, and then when it's their time to learn that lesson, if they're open to learning it, they'll learn it. And if not, you know, I don't also want to have that burden of like, you have to go and rescue everybody and like be everybody's educator because I think I definitely had that growing up. Yeah, just starting from that core of like, honestly, essentially everyone is actually just a good person. Some people are just good people having a really hard time. Kat, what do you what do you do now? Tell me more about your human rights commission. Okay, so sure. My nine to five is working at the New Zealand Human Rights Commission, which is a national human rights institution. And I am currently working as the lead advisor to the Equal Employment Opportunities Commissioner. So the commission has currently has four commissioners and they have different portfolios of work. You've got the Race Relations Commissioner, the Disability Rights Commissioner, the Chief Commissioner and the um, Equal Employment Opportunities Commissioner. And my commissioner also holds portfolios for business and human rights, women's rights, Pacific rights uh, and children's rights. When I first started at the commission, the natural fit for me was to go into the race relations team because the race relations team also works on religion and minorities and refugees and immigration and, you know, just race unity generally as a, as a theme. But I wanted a bit of a challenge and I wanted to in some ways work with and on issues that are not typically linked to human rights. So like business and work, I think we, particularly in, you know, increasingly capitalist modes of thinking and productivity and organizational culture, like we, we don't necessarily bring human rights language and standards into that. So I was like, I also, I also like the challenge of working with naysayers, you know, because when you, I don't know, for years I've worked in, you know, when you're talking about race unity, for example, by and large, you'll have people who are already quote unquote converted to the, to the cause, right? Like they're, they're already bought into the idea that like, it's not a good thing to be racist, whether they do it right or effectively. Okay, fine. And it's definitely complex and we've got so much work to do on it. And I tip my hat off to my colleagues who are striving really hard <laughs> to work on incredibly difficult issues. But I, but when it comes to like business, you know, you don't typically have, Those, these kinds of conversations in those environments and in those circles. So I'm, I'm curious, I was curious to know how to, how do we have meaningful conversations in spaces and with people who may not be thinking in with certain language or uh, within certain framework and yet nevertheless absolutely need it because, you know, where there is where there are people, there are human rights, right? So it's like an obvious on a very fun elementary level, it makes sense. But when you actually see it in practice, like the business communities are largely left out of these conversations because it seemed to not like impact them or isn't part of their 
It's something for civil society to do or, for, you know, whatever. Yeah. Could you give an example and maybe an issue or a theme in the business community when it relates to human rights? So many, but the one of the big um, bodies of work that I'm working on is related to migrant exploitation and modern slavery. So again, this is one of those topics where you say, wait, why are we looking at that in Aotearoa? Like, we don't have modern, we don't have slavery here. Like, what are you talking about? So one, there's a wake-up call around the, the prevalence and the presence of forms of slavery. But then there's the question of, accountability, um, due diligence, like, you know, who's responsible for identifying and responding to and eliminating, you know, the, the, the presence of modern slavery across all supply chains and across all operations. Can you exclude business from that? Like, no, you can't, right? But typically, it would be considered the, I guess, the purview of the state, so the government, but also then of like civil society, you know, to advocate or to educate. But actually, what is it about the forms and the practices and the operations, as well as the assumptions underlying business in this country, that is makes it right for human rights violations to take place, including where people are brought to this country or we bring products into this country that have links to slavery. And there is so much of it. Being exposed to those things every day in your working life and your, you know, life in general, how do you find peace or groundedness for yourself? These are big questions. Uh, I, look, I, when I say I don't seek comfort and pleasure, I don't mean I don't have comfort and, and have pleasure. I definitely do. And I'm, again, that's part of my privilege. Like I can log off we're in a hot you know like this again i think people exaggerate what comfort has to look like or self-care looks like like the fact that i have a home that is free from you know i i have to go into that space of realizing my relative privilege because that is comfort so but what i'm saying is like i don't necessarily no, like let's exaggerate like I don't need to go get a massage every day in order to feel like I've released tension whatever it is um or whatever other self-care routines are like out there in the wellness industry that are distracting people I watch my Netflix shows and I you know I was talking to you earlier before we started recording about learning to balance my weekends you know gonna go and have lunch with my parents and celebrate their wedding 41 year wedding anniversary and these are comforts and pleasures and and absolutely necessary because life is not black and white I will cry if I need to cry if the day has been difficult I pray every day I try I'm trying to learn to meditate yeah so I have practiced daily practices I guess you could say or some might call it spiritual practices and I'm very conscious of being active in my community and in my neighborhood making friends having conversations not taking yourself so seriously you know like I don't know just simple things like going to the playground and talking to people and not just looking at my phone or these are also important because you connect to reality and to hearts and that's also part of comfort I think because you ground yourself into like a space as well like I don't need to serve something always outside you know 
we can also serve our neighborhoods and the the families and the communities and the people and the friends that we meet. And I yeah, and it's I think it's a struggle to do that in this world. I think imbalance is the mode of operation. <laughs> Extremes is the mode of operation, but actually finding balance, if we can do that, it's it's very powerful. Yeah. And it's oh, it's like a daily thing that I contemplate about <laughs> is the finding balance. But also maybe not being too tough of on oneself for not finding the balance as well. Like, cause I feel like it's a lifelong journey. People sometimes, I've definitely had people assume that because I'm uh, spending a lot of time in my work, in my studies, in my hobbies, <laughs> talking about issues or, you know, like working in this kind of space that my whole life must be like this. And I'm like, no, I watched so much crap Netflix TV shows. <laughs> And go for walks and talk shit with friends. I watched Love is Blind season two because, I mean, like, oh, I mean, I need that stuff. You know, it, sometimes my husband laughs because I definitely am also the put on your, I don't know, independent film with subtitles and cry through it while there's like a 20-minute monologue of like someone in black and white just talking about an experience they had. Like, I'll also go into that. But I just, you know, he'll just love you. Like, how are you watching this junk? Like this, yeah. and I was like, I love it. I also, you know, we need the, I don't even think it's a distraction. I think it's also, there's some reality there. You know, the way people think that I also meta-analyze Love is Blind. Like I, I could write you an essay as to how Love is Blind is a whatever. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Kat, gosh, I feel like I can ask you or talk to you for hours and I have so many more questions but I will probably just ask um, a few ones before we start closing off and one I wanted to ask is when it comes to racism ethnic relations belonging all of those things and what do you find because there are so many levers that we can use uh, policy uh, the way we design and build things the way we you know practices I don't know there's so many things what levers do you personally employ or think are important as if that was a simple question <laughs> uh, in three sentences or less <laughs> uh pull any lever that is available to you because I think we all have different circles of influence um and one of the risks that I've seen in I guess, the world of change and social advancement or whatever you want to call it, is that um, there's a lot of delegating and a lot of people thinking it's the work of others. For example, very like simplistically, people think it's the work of the, it's the role of the government to do X and then they'll just sit and do nothing themselves. Or um, why isn't my manager doing Y? Or like it's very easy to point fingers and say, A, to just criticize, like it's very, you know, what the, what do they call it? Like keyboard activism, <laughs> you know, like people just sitting there like being like, oh, I don't like how you did that. So I'm going to write this really nasty comment and just criticize, but like they're not doing anything themselves. So I think like the first thing is just everyone has a lever they can push and it can be everything from a conversation. Like let's not underestimate the power of our words and our thoughts and our, just ourselves, like, let's just start at that very fundamental level of the individual, you know, all of those typical things, like, you know, be the change you want to see in the world, like all these very, you know, we laugh at it, we roll our eyes at it, we think it's too simplistic, but they're deeply powerful, you know, 
because we, we are organic with our environment. So if as indiv- if individuals are walking around unhealed, unreflective, you know, reflection is so powerful. You know, how many of us are just taking an hour to reflect? Then I think there's the level of the community. So are we building community? Are you part of communities? Are we having conflict? Are we meeting our neighbors? Are we creating spaces where conversations can take place, where new activities can be formed that are constructive, that are unifying? Or are we all in our little individual silos, our families, units, and um, maybe if we're being very polite, nod our head to the person that we're walking past? And then there's the level of the institutions. And institutional levers are multiple and varied. So do I diminish the fact that we write submissions to Parliament on the need for a modern slavery act? No. Do I think it's important? Yes. Do I think that's the single lever that will eliminate the presence of modern slavery across all supply chains and operations in this country? No. Because I know that if there is a business owner who has not had any reflection in their life, who has not, is not part of any community, has no sense or source of their purpose of existence and think that the purpose of their existence is to accumulate as much wealth as they can um, by all means necessary, even if it means the exploitation of the people around them. No amount of laws is going to do that. Think of how many laws have been passed to try and help curtail uh, tax fraud. Or can it mitigate the severity of some of them? Yes, but it's not the only lever. But we can push. If you work in government, pull the levers in government. If you work in civil society, pull the levers in civil society. But if you don't work in government or civil society, it doesn't mean there's no levers that you can pull. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that. It's almost like, okay, I don't have to think too too big because when I think too big, I also feel disempowered. I feel overwhelmed. I feel... I can point fingers easily because it's too big of a problem. But when I think of like, okay, here in my little space, in my little circle of influence, what do I do? We start from the position that every single person is noble. Every single person has limitless capacity to contribute to the world. Then every single person can be an active protagonist of social change. That includes the stay-at-home mother who is educating nurturing, loving, re-healing the new generation of children that are coming into this world who are going to to live and, and contribute, all the way to whatever you want to say in terms of an institutional hierarchy, right? And everybody in between. You know, why if you if you start, for example, in your home and you create a space in that home where love takes place, where meaningful conversations are had, where there's a spirit of devotion. doesn't matter what your religious, spiritual, non-religious, non-spiritual background is. There is something at the core of all people that wants to connect, that wants to transcend, that wants to have meaning, right? So it might be in song. It might be in prayer. It might be in reading something. It might be in creating. It might be in art. It might be in whatever. And you bring that into the home. The form and the function of that home changes. Oh, Kat, I love that. I love that. Let's, um, yeah, let's let's go into, we have some quick fire questions to end our conversation with. Start with one on food. What's your favorite dish? Yes, 
Yes, Persian food for sure is my favorite food. Um, that and Italian food on par with each other. Persian food, Persian kebab, Zirish Polobam Morg, which is this like chicken and rice dish with barberries. Where can we eat that in Auckland? Come over. No, um, I think there's a couple of Persian restaurants, but I don't know if they do them as well as you got to find your Persian auntie. If you were the main character in the movie or a TV show, existing or made up, what would it be or what would it be about? That would be my worst nightmare. I do not want to be the main character of anything. No, thank you. <laughs> That's my genuine answer. Um, I mean, look, you know, I would love for my parents' story to become a film. I think that their, their life story is incredible. Had never thought of that before, but sure, why not? There we go. If you were to propose one change, one policy change to organizations or New Zealand government, and it, and it would, if you proposed it, it would go through, don't worry about the logistics and details. <laughs> what would it be? Yeah, I'm one of those rare people that doesn't believe that policy is the answer to everything. You know, I've said this before, that I think that our policies and practices towards displaced people is a litmus test for how we view humanity and how we view our own society and our own people, whatever our own people means. But like New Zealand could do a lot better with its refugee policies. Um, I think we do comparatively quite well to many other countries in the world. But if we look, if we're seeking relative distinction, then fine, maybe we can close our books and just move on with our life. But I think we, we have the opportunity to be exemplars and to, to make some really brave choices. And so I would probably select something in that space. Well, to close off, we're going to have a positive note. <laughs> what, um, when you think of yourself, Kat, what makes you feel like a badass? I would love to feel that more regularly. I feel like I need you as like my like cheerleader by the side. Like you've got a lot of energy and motivation here. Um, at times when I'm just being a mum, quote unquote, just. We underestimate motherhood and the contributions that mothers make to society. And when I have a mother win, like a mother win moment, I don't know, some whatever it is, like this morning my daughter watched a new show called Hello Jack the Kindness Show. And afterwards we just watched one episode and it was about, you know, if you love someone maybe you can make something for them. And, you know, she afterwards was like, I'm going to make a little book for you. And she wrote, you know, I love you on it and just a rainbow and like just these little seeming, seemingly non-important things. And it just felt like a mama would, you know, and I was like, that's on those moments. I'm like, this is great. What else, you know, like what else could I possibly want? Mm, that's so beautiful. Kat, thank you so much. I just, I, I, I'm constantly in your like, admiration of you. I feel like you are such a wonderful, grounded, passionate, but in the humbleness of a human who watches Lovers and Blind and still shares this like profound insights into how we change society. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. It's very, very exciting and so needed. It's really needed. Appreciate you. And that was Kat. Thank you for listening. If you haven't already, check out the 14 other incredible conversations in this series. Share, subscribe, send to someone who might benefit from either feeling seen or learning more about ethnic experiences in Aotearoa.
This conversation is our collaboration on Belong, Aotearoa, Planet FM, Storio, and Sport Waitakere. So you can find the links to those excellent organizations in the bio. Thank you to our funder, Auckland Council Regional Development Fund, and to New Zealand On Air. Thank you.